Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Warning. This story includes discussion of addiction, the death of children, and sexual offenses. It was minutes after the Iowa State Cyclones had lost to the Michigan State Spartans in the 2000 Elite Eight final game. And I was looking for a place to hide. (laughs) At the Palace of Auburn Hills, I headed down the curved hallways. First two doors were locked. The third one wasn't. I stepped in. It was a small room pitch black, and I leaned on anything in front of me. I wailed and cried for what seemed like hours. My heart broken too. That was the biggest goal of my entire life in coaching was to play in the Final Four. And the the millions of people that watched that game that day, that was the game that would take us to the Final Four and give us a chance to bring home a national championship. At the age of eight, I loved basketball, fell in love with basketball. I wanted to be a player and I wanted to be a coach at eight. Here it is 35 years later, I find myself in the, on the pinnacle of college basketball with Iowa State as one of the promising coaches in the country. And the sky was the limit for me at that point. It could have been college, it could have been the NBA, we'll never know. Because what nobody knew at the time, is there was a storm brewing. Even I didn't know. The storm had to do with the three-year secret life that I had developed, unbeknownst to anyone but me. And while on the outside looking in, it would appear that I was, I was really on top of things, maybe at least professionally. Look at that guy, boy, he's, he's really got it going. You know what? I was living in hell, and it was dark. And I was struggling with alcohol, and I was broken. And I was reaching out. You see, in November of 1992, on a November day, I left for practice 
as an assistant at Miami of Ohio. I got called off the floor about 20 minutes into practice and rushed to the hospital in Oxford. By the time I arrived, my four-year-old daughter Meredith had passed away. Whoever said that the day you lose a child, everything changes. I'll promise you they lost a child. <sighs> Trying to explain what it felt like, I can't. What I can tell you is through, through faith and family and, and, and people around us, we, we, we tried to do the best we could. But there's an emptiness you just can't define. Three years later, we had moved to Florida, and our second oldest daughter, Claire, got a hold of this same rare disease that took maybe an hour to kick in and take a life. It was rare. Nobody knew anything about it in any hospital. And there was our Claire in that bed. Thank goodness we were at Arnold Palmer Children's Hospital because those doctors saved her. She's my warrior. Three years later, after an awesome day in the snow, in January, I saw a funny look in my daughter Natalie's eye, and the unthinkable happened. The disease took her. <clears throat> My life <laughs> was spiraling out of control. And I didn't have any answers. I was the father who could not keep his little girls from dying. And I was looking for any way to cope with life so that I could feel some semblance of a pulse and try to figure this out. And so I worked more, which is almost impossible, and I drank a lot. But I was so detached from the world, and I was so detached from my wife, who's, who's grieving just as bad, if not worse than me. And so I thought, you know, this isn't really doing it. I got to find something else because I, there's a cup that I just can't fill. And so to the working and the alcohol, I added viewing pornography. And this happened late at night while my family was sleeping. This was something that I knew was wrong, dead wrong. Yet as I would find out later, I created a world within my world to make some things okay. If you can even imagine that, I can't right now, but I did. 
What I really needed was to feel the emotions of grief and go through the cycles. What I did is lean on my addictions. I had thus created my own prison. Now, I have friends here tonight who will tell you that he put up a pretty good face. But I was in my own prison, the one I created. Three years after that Michigan State game, I was in my office at Iowa State working on a game against Nebraska. And a knock came on my door. Two men walked in wearing suits and closed the door behind them. And I was perturbed. Don't mess with this game plan. We got to win this game. We got to win them all. But it wasn't funny when they told me they were federal agents. They asked me a couple questions. I answered. And then I really knew why they were there. And in a moment's notice, a thunderbolt came down and ripped right through my spine. My entire body was warm. I was probably sweating. The sheer terror of what could come from what they knew was a reality physically in my body. Yet at the same time, a waterfall came and rushed through my body from head to toe. And it was the kind of waterfall that spelled freedom. It was the kind of waterfall that takes weight off you. Tons of weight, hundreds of pounds. And I could feel it, the manifestation of weight leaving my body was palpable. And therein was a representation of the two answers that I had to choose from to give these agents. My hands are on, my hands are on my chair. My right hand is 10 inches from the phone. I knew, because I'd rehearsed it, I knew that when I was in dire straits, rather than say anything, just reach over and pick up that phone and call my attorney. Thinking, we can probably blow this thing out of here and get rid of this. I could not move my right hand. And I immediately felt a hand on my shoulder. I thought, this is really weird. Why won't my hand move and who's on my shoulder? What's going on? Well, if you go back to when I started adding things to my coping list, it was God that I put in the closet and closed the door and threw away the key. Yeah, dumb me, like it might take more than that. But in my mind, I eliminated my maker from everything that I did. I didn't want him to see. But he made a comeback. He was on my shoulder. 
Therefore, in the moment of truth, I made a decision to tell those fellows, I'll give you everything you need. I'll answer every question you have. I am done. I'm done. I'm worn out. I've been living a life that is not right. I'm going to give you everything. And in the middle of all that, I'm thinking, you know, you're going to prison. A year later, I stand in federal court in front of Judge Longstaff to hear him read the United States of America versus Randall Brown. Whew. I almost passed out. Had I looked at my mother, I would have. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Judge Longstaff read a two-year sentence uh, would be coming my way in federal prison, medium security at Butner, North Carolina. Now, at the time when he said that, I'm thinking to myself, no, wait a minute, Judge. North Carolina, you got to do some geography. You know how far that is from Iowa? I got to see my family. I got to do this. I got to do that. Can you hear me say I? I, I this, I that. He went on to say this. The reason that I'm recommending that you go to Butner is because they have the best sex offender treatment program in the Bureau of Prisons from coast to coast. There's only three of them, and Butner's got the best. They have a 10-year waiting list. It's a two-year pro two program, and you've got two years. I'm going to recommend that's where you go. Smartest man I've ever met. Thank God for Judge Longstaff. So here I go. No longer coaching. That's done. I'm trying to figure life out big time, and I'm going to a place that has got me rocked, obviously. The first day I'm there, I get one of the great questions of all time. Mr. Brown, you have a choice. You can either in your time here become a better criminal or a better person. Which do you choose? I said, Dr. Martinez, I'll take the latter because I got a lot of work to do. Now he heard that a lot and he never really believed anybody but I told him the truth that that's what I was going to do. Do you know that I was so dripping with being defensive, with being entitled, with having ego, with thinking that I was better than other people? I didn't even think I was supposed to be in there with those other guys. There's 99 other men in this unit. Like, what am I in here for with these guys? That's the way I thought. And that's why I allowed myself to do what I did, and that's why I ended up in my own prison. It took me six months to commit to this program. Six months. And I literally went to my knees 
six months in, literally. And I gave it all to the program. I said, I will do everything that you asked me to do here at Butner. And I did. Butner was a prison. But the work that I had to do at Butner was because of the prison that I had already created myself. It's kind of a weird play on the word prison, I guess. But there I was to do my work. And just like Humpty Dumpty was on the wall and fell and broke in a million pieces, that was me. And do you know what happened when I fell and broke in a million pieces? Somehow, I had seven doctors, doctors and treatment specialists, world class, which I didn't know when I was acting like an idiot the first six months. They were there every day. So I got to wake up in the morning, do my deal. I would go to work. I'd clean showers and toilets. You hear that? Showers and toilets in prison? So, no, 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 don't, no. No, it's not a career path. It's not anything you want to get into. But I did that in the morning. I did it to the best of my ability. And then in the afternoon, I got for four hours, I got to go to this program. And I got to loving this thing like going to basketball practice. But I'm telling you, it was no joke. You were intimidated. You were challenged. And they made you feel a lot of times about that big. And reminded you that there's a reason that you're here. But I didn't care because they were on my side and every day they pushed me. Oh my gosh, what a place. Now there's a number that's really interesting, 2,400. That's an approximate number of the year, uh, excuse me, of the hours that I did treatment at Butner. So, of course, if we take a 24-hour day and run it 100 straight days from beginning to end, that's how long I got to work on me. And I thought, my goodness, could I please have got out of the way and just understood that I'm just one person? The things being done around me were phenomenal. So it was easy to put in your work. <clears throat> in the last 17 years, I've forfeited millions and millions of dollars and, and one of the great jobs and careers that a guy could ever have. But I made the right decision God helped me make the right decision at the right time. And so now, what is this guy up to now? I am so proud of my daughters, Claire and Jane. Claire's 30, Jane's 25. 
so, just so fortunate to have them. And they're just our, our great young ladies. That's my passion in life. Beyond that, I'm making a mess. Excuse me. <laughs> oh. There's a message left over from the mess. How about that? We'll leave it at that. Uh, because I've got asked a lot, well, what do you want to do? And, and I came to the point where I thought, I'm not, when I leave the earth, the day I leave the earth, I don't want all of these things that have happened in my life, good, bad, and different, and especially the tough stuff, adversity. I'm not putting it in my pocket and, and going with it. I don't need it where I'm going. I want to leave it. I want to turn my mess into a message. And that's what I'm doing right now. And it is so inspiring to me that I get an opportunity to work with other men around the country and around the world with my business. Men that are hiding behind a curtain. Men that are living a secret life. Men that have addictions. Men that are living in darkness so dark they can't find the doorknob. And these are the guys that I get a chance to work with. And they're me is what they are. And it is unbelievable that, I, it, that it's all come to this and it's evolved down to this one thing that I get a chance to do now the rest of my life. And my hope, as I always say, when I speak, when I write, when I'm involved in big groups, small groups, one-on-one, -on -one, I always watch my words because I just never know when I say the thing at a perfect time that someone is going to hear that will change their life and the way they think and wake up every morning not in the hole and not in darkness, but ushered into life. Thank you. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.